0: Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you to work powerfully through the reading and the preaching of your word here tonight. Let this uh, exhortations in your word work powerfully to change us, to change our mind, to regard our, re-guide our hearts in the direction where they long to be because of your great salvation in us. Lord, help us once again to sit and examine your scripture concerning the proclamation of your gospel, of your kingdom, as an essential prerequisite for the end of this age to come. Nothing else matters but that your gospel may be proclaimed. Make that real to us tonight. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verses 3. Through fourteen, <clears throat> Actually, I'll just start at verse 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For kingdom will rise against, uh, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. and then the end will come. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thus far is the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing <coughs> to the reading of his word.
1: Be to God.
0: Sorry. We notice in verse 1, to start off with, that... Jesus comments about the destruction of the temple in response to the disciples' admiration of this building. In the Gospel of Mark, also, in chapter 13, 1, we see the disciples actually give a more flowering response that, aren't these buildings amazing? Aren't they just wonderful? Three questions, however, are provided. When will these things happen? When Jesus proclaims that these things will be destroyed and not one block will be left on top of another? What will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? In some way, the disciples see that all of these three things are related, and Jesus does not disagree with them. They are related. But what Jesus is doing is turning their focus away from the magnificent buildings that even many religious temples and even in Christianity buildings are built and uh, people are in awe of these things. And somehow there's almost like a, a spiritual euphoric um, thought or heartfelt feelings that go with that. I remember recently uh, one particular famous person uh, went to uh, the Muslim Holy Land and he, this was a guy who has proclaimed to be a Christian and uh, he just was always affirming a church and Jesus and the gospel. But here in this short video segment, he was looking at these magnificent temples in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, where they worship a false god called Allah. And at one point in this video, he was asked, what did he think about this? And it was quite stunning that this guy actually turned and said, that there has got to be more than one way to heaven after looking at these buildings than Jesus. How quick the opinions of men turn when we focus on earthly edifices and buildings instead of what truly matters. And that is what Jesus is guiding their attention to here. Jesus describes what the disciples should expect to face in the coming years, the destruction of the temple, which eventually takes place in 70 A.D. Here also we have an indication of when these things will take place. But our Lord is quick to remind them that this is not the end, in verse 6. What he is saying, yes, in a few short decades, all of this will go away. How, even down to detail, what happened in 70 A.D., remember the top of the temple was lined with gold. And when the Romans came in in 70 A.D. and burned the temple, that gold melted and seeped down in between the cracks of all the blocks. Well, why did, what did you think the Romans did? They pulled every block off one another to get to the gold. God's word was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. But Jesus was turning their mind to different things. You can imagine just the horror of that this great temple that has stood for centuries was now absolutely destroyed. This was the second temple, not the first one. But yet there was such awe in it. Can you imagine what they must have experienced, what they must have thought? This is the end of the world. But it wasn't. Rather, What Jesus says is these are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. These words of our Lord are also communicated with the dual purpose for alerting God's people concerning what the continuing church will also face even just prior and up to Christ's actual coming and the end of our age. We look at verses 29 through 51 in Matthew 24. When he talks about that, what is yet to come for the continuing church as we close to the end of the age, we should note that the obvious that these signs are not exclusive to any particular age. These signs have existed in every age. When he talks about wars and rumors of wars and tribulation and persecution, I remember in my Systematic Theology three class in eschatology, our professor gave us something to read um, that was written right before the turn of the first millennium, like in 980 A.D. And you, could, you can almost see, it would almost be like someone plagiarized the same words from things we heard from Hal Lindsey about, oh no, we're going to hit the year 2000. The world is going to be destroyed. The end has now come. I remember Celia, my wife, was working in banking software, and one of the things that absolutely infuriated me was that they were talking about how the banks were not ready for the digits turning to 2,000, and all the bank accounts would be wiped out. But my wife was actually working with implementation teams to make sure that that wasn't so. They had a remedy. They were fixing. They were taking care of all of this. But yet these people were coming up with this dastardly plan to sell more books and attend more conferences because the end is here. Imagine what people must have felt right before World War I. Talk about wars and rumors of wars. Maybe during some of the religious persecutions in Europe, in the 15th and 16th century, maybe before World War II, the worst war in all of human history, or maybe those who lived in Russia right after World War II, where over 60 million Russians were persecuted by Stalin, their own leader, and put to death in the gulags. Surely then they would have said, the end is here. Even today, we are hearing of wars and more rumors of wars. Uh, will it become nuclear? Threats of. Nu- I mean, folks, there is no end to these things. And sometimes they are grave. Sometimes we do, should be concerned. But our focus needs to be on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not necessarily what's happening in human affairs. Because if we take our eyes off what is really important, then we are subjecting ourselves to every wind and wave of teaching that might come by them. These signs have existed in every age. But not only will the end of the age be marked by them, indeed, we, we see from the scriptures that it will be prominent. I'm not saying there won't be wars and rumors of wars and tribulation and all of those things to come. There will be, and it probably will be more pronounced than it is then, than it is now. Nonetheless, our Lord exhorts us, exhorts all Christians to prepare themselves in their need to pursue discernment, confidence, and understanding. We look in verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, he answered them, See to it that no one leads you astray. See to it that no one leads you astray. One of the things I do each and every morning in my devotional time is I recite the Lord's Prayer. And then after that, as I'm about to read his word, I ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, as I read your word, build in me knowledge and understanding, wisdom, and discernment. Because that is only where those things are truly found. We should not be a people, as we read, who will simply judge things by what we see or necessarily judge things by what we hear. We want to know what is true. Jesus' principal counsel to his disciples is that see to it, meaning this is important, this is imperative, see to it that no one misleads you. This appears to have particular relevance concerning those times when the church when, when, though, when there will emerge from the church those who claim to be Christ Himself, and many will acquiesce to them. I remember sometimes over the past twenty-three years, there's been a few where a person has actually called themselves the Messiah, but there have been a few, most overseas. But there are other people, especially in the American landscape of evangelicalism, where it's almost they're saying everything but that. I have to go see this guy. I cannot grow close to get to this uh, to God unless I go see this guy or whatever. Folks, the word of God in the local church and our worship as a body will prepare you and equip you for everything you need for all life and godliness. Let us not chase after those people who would put themselves up as saying, yes, I am the Christ, or yes, you cannot grow as a Christian unless you buy my tapes or buy my books or things like this. That is how deception creeps into the church. The rise of false religions are always a plague upon the church. And sadly, the Lord even permits the rise of false religions to reveal those who are in the church who are not of the church. I don't know about you, but I've had the experience before even with a person who was very close to me. A false teacher started to come in. This guy was in my wedding. And whatever this pastor, rogue pastor was saying, he and his wife bought into it, and they left the church. It was terrible and sad to see. And you ask yourself, how could this happen? Well, God was revealing things about their hearts that apparently their knowledge and understanding, their commitment to the Word of God was weak. And sometimes God brings that upon people because they may seem strong Christians on the outside, but what matters is in here and up here, that we are able to discern. These were people who did not see to it that no one mislead you. The key here is to understand that our ability for discernment is the product of our knowledge of the truth from God's Word and from our pursuit of genuine Christian maturity. The more you and I neglect the study of the Word of God and being pursuant of spiritual maturity toward godliness through sanctification, the more you and I make ourselves vulnerable To be deceived, do you spend time every day in God's Word? Do you spend even 30 seconds, maybe a minute or two, in prayer for your family and your spiritual walk? The other thing that the Lord is encouraging them is to have courage and confidence rather than fear. Again, in verses 6 through 8. We see, and you will hear rumors of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed. For these must take place, but the end is not year, here. The nation will rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquake in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. In and of themselves, such things cannot help but make us fearful, especially in a military town. But our courage and confidence comes from he who has overcome the world. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This would be a good time to say amen. All right. (laughs) Here our Lord exhorts us not to be frightened, but to have courage. How? How? To understand that all of these things reside under the purview of divine providence. All things, good or bad, small or large, and our place in them are determined by God's gracious directing of all the affairs of human history. Therefore, our fear has no basis. That's another thing. When I look in the morning, usually on my front porch with my rocker, if it's not too cold and it won't be in Florida. I see the sunrise, and I thank God for his creation. Sometimes you just need to behold the color of leaves or the singing of birds or the glory of a sunrise or sunset. But I also thank God for our place in this particular point of human history. He is the one that determined that. And we are here, but for a short time. Let us make the most of each and every day as we do. But a study of God's providence is key, is absolutely key to our having confidence and a lack of fear for whatever may happen. I remember when I was in Iraq and I was going on some of the convoys with my soldiers and, and folks, we, we, we got hit a lot uh, It seemed like toward the end there, every convoy I was on, we got hit. Uh, They actually started calling me the Magneto chaplain because we're always getting shot at because the chaplain's with us. One guy, one American truck driver looked at me, and we were having our briefing, and he said, oh, no, a chaplain, this ain't good. And I said, hey, look, I'm, I'm fully experienced, trained, and licensed to marry you or bury you. So unless you have a dress, I know what to prepare for. (laughs) But one of the soldiers asked me one time, and he said, Chaplain, you're unarmed out here. Aren't you afraid? And I told him, no. Because if it is not my time to go by the Lord's wonderful providence, there isn't anything in all heaven and earth that is going to upset God's plan. On the other hand, if it is my time to go, there isn't anything I can do to stop that. My trust is in his care for my life and for Celia's. Divine providence is a wonderful thing that he rules, that he ordains and governs whatsoever comes to pass. This is the surest place where every Christian may find for themselves an anchor of peace and assurance, even in the most turbulent and fearful of times, whereas without which we are subject to be thrown and tossed about by every not only false teaching, but also all malignant current events. John Calvin rightly observed that the ignorance of divine providence is the in the christian is the greatest of all miseries the ignorance of divine providence in the christian is the greatest of all miseries we look in verses 9 through 12 where it says and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. Up to this point, Jesus has revealed to his disciples that this is what truly perilous times look like. How many of you know what it's like to be betrayed by another person? I do. How many of you know what it's like to have betrayed another person? I do. Those are things that we do not want in our life. Rather, we need to stay firm and keep to the course that God has given us. Yes, there will be hatred. There will be persecution, social Disintegration, religious hysteria and deception, lawlessness, apathy for our neighbors. Jesus ends this section with an obvious question that any one of us would ask if we lived in these conditions. Who will be saved? How will we be saved? The answer is both an indicative as well as prescriptive when Celia and I were in Scotland toward the end and all the riots were going on, we were watching the TV. We even saw what was happening here that one night at Cross Creek Mall in Fayetteville when the riots were taking place, the attempting to burn down uh, the marketplace. We were watching that from Scotland. And our thoughts ran to this. And the one thing I thought was, And this is a sign of divine providence. God, you are shaking our tree. You are revealing the bad fruit that we never would have seen if you had not brought this about. In many ways, the church is very weak in their faith. But Jesus' first answer being indicative, he tells us who will be saved, the one who endures to the end. Perseverance is a quality of faith, understanding, and character. It is much easier to stay the course when we understand the big picture and the awesome God who directs all things, good and bad, to its appointed end. But perseverance is also a miserable state of affairs for those who only believe the things that are before their eyes, like some TV screen. We live in tumultuous times right now, folks. Many people are walking away from the faith. Ligonier Ministry has come out, and just about any um, uh, barn or whatever else. They're saying, how many people are leaving the church? By the thousands, tens of thousands, you know, Now it's like how many people actually believe that Jesus Christ and the gospel is down to maybe like 30%, where it used to be like 70%. How many people call themselves a Christian, not to say that they are? used to be in the 80%. Now it's beneath 50%. Why is that? Can we truly lose our faith once we have it established in our hearts? The answer is no. We are kept by Christ because of his grip on us, not because of our grip on him. There's too many things in this life that will cause us to lose faith if faith is genuinely that fickle. But God is shaking our tree. He is revealing those who were Christians in name only maybe those who were weak and maybe their family maybe their close friends but he who endures to the end is the one that will be saved what matters most is that our triune god will fulfill the great work of redemption which was first mentioned in the scriptures in genesis chapter 3:15 did many of you know that that's where the gospel first appears right after the fall of man. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is called the proto-euangelion, proto meaning the first announcement of the good news of the gospel. But we have to be sure about what this gospel is, and I'm leading to the end here. Folks, many things that we share with people and that people share with us are not the gospel. How many of you have heard, maybe you have said, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That may be true. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the person of Christ and his redemptive work to save us from our sins. When was the last time you shared the gospel and you shared verses like Romans 5, 5 12? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Or Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think from time to time, we all, need a refresher of what the gospel truly is. And we need to steer clear from understanding that Christian-sounding platitudes will save no one. Only a genuine faith in what Christ has done for us on the cross is going to save us. The issue is not even really God's wrath. It is about our sins that Christ died for to take away God's wrath from us. If that isn't a part of the gospel message, then consider what am I sharing with my friends? But the one who endures will be saved. But notice... Jesus now turns to, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the prescriptive part of this passage. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Have you ever noticed that many in our society, especially those churches with aberrant end-time theologies, they all run to there's wars and rumors of wars, and they say these are the events that are indicative of the end times are here. Jesus says, no. Those are just the birth pangs. The end comes when the gospel has been proclaimed to all nations, as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Christ provides for us that this is the true requisite for the end of the age and that it is near, is when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world. Then and only then will both the end of the age and the second coming of Christ will take part. Will we see its fulfillment? How do we do that? Well, there's three main ways that Scripture tells us. One is your personal witness with family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. God is faithful to provide each and every one of us with divine opportunities or divine appointments, one time it was put, to share the gospel with certain people who ask or inquire or you tell them. Have I had those? Yes. Have I failed to engage some of those opportunities? I have. But we are again, once again, confident by God's divine providence that just because Chuck failed to share the gospel, that person is not doomed. But there are a great many times when the Lord has given me the wonderful opportunity to lead brothers and sisters to faith in Christ on a personal basis, certainly as a military chaplain, but even just as Chuck Williams who goes to the gym or Chuck Williams who rides his bike or a Harley, that is. The second one is missions. People get up, move, pack, sell their stuff. These are people who go into foreign lands. They give up everything. And the vast majority of missions, especially foreign missions, those people who go generally will never see the fruit of their work. They may right before their rise. We think about John Calvin, who in 1556 sent three missionaries to South America Two of them were killed. The other came back pretty bloodied. <laughs> that was followed in, 18, in the uh, 1600s. Dutch, Dutch missionaries were sent to Brazil again. Not very successful because there was such a stranglehold of the false teachings of Roman Catholicism. But then in 1860, a guy named Simonton and his wife went into Brazil. He wrote catechisms. He taught the people the distinction between the true gospel and what the Roman Catholic Church was saying. Within eight years, both of them were dead. But yet God worked through them to plant a seed, and the fruit of their work is revealed today. One couple, a man and wife, the fruit of their work was the early formation of the Presbyterian Church of Brazil, which now numbers over one million members but they never saw it. But they trusted the gospel to do its work. I remember when I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was working at the gym, it was called the Eric Lytle Gym. Remember Eric Lytle? Chariots of Fire. Goes to be a missionary in China, dies in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Or maybe Ruth Bell Graham, whose parents did the same during that time. Or other people. Folks, let us not look to big Billy Graham crusades. Not to say, I I love Billy Graham. His his preaching, uh, I love to hear it sometimes. But there was a survey done maybe about 30 years ago, and 84% of the people who said, I came to Christ, do you know how they said they came to Christ? Through a personal acquaintance or friend. That's how God works through his church, to proclaim the kingdom to others. But maybe some of you, and maybe some of you children who are listening right now, you might be called to be a missionary to the mission field. Parents, prepare your children. Because God's call might be in them to go to a foreign land to preach the gospel. And maybe it won't work out well for them, but the seeds that they sow, we have no idea how the Holy Spirit will use. Or maybe they will come back, but Here's the third option. And I think this is the model that the apostle Paul really displayed before us in the scriptures. And then is going out and planning churches. That's what Paul did. As an apostolic person, he went to all these towns in Asia Minor and Greece and everything. Now he got stoned and beat and jailed and robbed and all this other stuff. I hope that doesn't happen to us in Florida. But folks, that is the primary means by which the church goes into all of those areas that are really unreached by the gospel or barely reached by the gospel or reached by a false gospel, that God sends people. Please do not cut yourself off. As I mentioned this morning when we were here, Celia and I did not see this coming 16 months ago. But God has led us in our heart and every step of the way, we were amazed at how he went before us and provided everything we need, and our hearts started to become more and more excited for what we're going to do down there. Folks, it's a small church. Seven adults and two children. But we're praying for the Lord to do a great work in that county. My, I would hope that this church would grow to such an extent that within three to five years, our church will start planting other churches around Pasco County. Again, a county of 600,000 people and not one, not one, faithful, reformed, Presbyterian, gospel-proclaiming church. The only denominations down there are those that have already capitulated to cultural accommodation. The gospel is ready. The people are ready. We're still praying about all the people who have yet to move to Pasco County from Iowa or Kansas, and they have no idea what God has in store for them, and neither do we. And that's the great thing about it. But church planning is certainly one of the first and foremost things. The biblical example throughout the book of Acts of what Paul did. Each one of the letters we read, the Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, those are all the fruit of church planting. And I'm at least thrilled that our denomination is trying to pursue this as best they can. But like I said, folks, we have no idea what God has called any one of us to. If he plucks Celia and I out of this congregation to do it, he can do it to you too, even to some of your children later on in their life. So the exhortation I have for you is this: be open to what God has called you to do in in terms of how you can be of greater ministry to those in your sphere of influence, and maybe God is calling to some of you to go and plant a church or be in a missionary, or maybe just to stay here in faithful North Carolina but look for those divine appointments which you can share the gospel or demonstrate God's love to people who are certainly needing it. And that's what Jesus is saying at the end of Matthew chapter 24 or actually verse 14. Tough times come and go, but those things do not dictate God's purposes to reach the world for his work of redemption. I like the way Jonathan Edwards said it best. That the work of redemption is the greatest occasion for the glory of God throughout the world. That is a powerful quote. How do we put that into hands and feet? Church planning. Going on missions, even short-term missions. Folks, I went on a mission trip to Africa for three weeks back in 2004. It was that trip that the Lord led in my heart to pursue the ministry. I had no desire for the ministry until that three-week trip to Africa. God works in powerful ways. When we take that step of faith, go out there and see how He'll use us in the lives of other people, even people who don't even speak English and you don't speak Swahili. So as we close... Let us remember that our God is a great God. He is a God that has placed you and your children at this point in history, in this place of faithful North Carolina, to be prepared for what he is going to call you to do in next year, next 10 years, five years. Again, parents, how can you best now prepare your children for God's call on their life to proclaim the gospel to all the world as a testimony to the nations because then and only then will the end of the age come and the second coming of Christ where we will all be lifted up and be before the throne for all eternity praising God, seeing him as he really is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word because it is your word that is the power through through which the faith you have given us we can move mountains. Through which many sinners will come to know you in a saving way through which we can train up our children and our families to play a greater role in their lives, in their generation, for the work of your gospel to be proclaimed wherever they are. So, Lord, continue, Holy Spirit, especially do your work of transformation through us and help us to continually be attentive to our worship of you as a body here at Cross Creek giving attention to the ordinary means of grace that work so powerfully to change and transform us into your image. Amen.